Hello and welcome to another episode of James Bond and Friends. James Bond is unavailable, so I'm your fill-in host this week, James Page from MI6 and MI6 Confidential Magazine. Uh, so 2021 subscription is now open. Please uh, give us your money. So this week I learned that Bond villain Jonathan Price is four inches shorter than horror legend Vincent Price. Uh, I found that out on a price comparison website. Oh, <laughs> oh God. This is one of those gets better as it goes along episodes, right? right. Yeah, it is. <laughs> good, 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 good. Just checking. Um, listener of the week is DCXE. Thank you very much for your review on iTunes. If you want to be listener of the week, I think there's a clue there as to how you get named. Um, so this week, we're going to examine the hypothesis that Timothy Dalton's era as James Bond is going somewhat uh, through a renaissance right now, or a Dalton bounce, as we're calling it may be connected to the Craig era or not, to be discussed. Uh, joining us this week is Bill, Calvin, Dr. Lisa, Sean, and Phil. Would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Uh, I'm Bill Koenig. I run a blog called The Spy Command. I'm Calvin Dyson, and I have a YouTube channel named after myself where I talk about Bond-related things. Uh, I'm Dr. Lisa Funnel. I'm a university professor, award-winning author, and podcaster specializing in gender in James Bond and other action films. I'm Phil. I edit a horror magazine, and I'm, I'm getting in my review of James Bond and Friends right now so I can get Listener of the Week next week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I'm Sean Longmore. I'm a graphic designer, and I sometimes do some James Bond projects. Awesome. So our hypothesis is that Dalton's era um, has had a bit of a bounce. Um, during the Craig years. Um, so we, we ran a poll on the Twitterati last night, which was, um, as we're coming to the end of the Daniel Craig era, how has your appreciation of Dalton's Bond changed? With just shy 1,500 votes gone up in people's appreciation, 37%. Mm. So more than one in three people, it's gone up. 54% feels the same. And only 8.6% say they actually like his tenure less than they did before. Um so one in three fans liking his era more is pretty strong numbers. Yes, um, I think in one way he, he uh, did not get off to the strongest start in that there had been so much publicity about how Pierce Brosnan was going to be the guy and then he wasn't the guy. And maybe some people initially, I think more here in the U.S. than elsewhere, kind of viewed him as like a second choice Um but I mean, I thought he was solid, you know, right from the get-go. I'm going to um, potentially steal a phrase that I've heard uh, James use on this podcast before about the um, the Eon narrative. Um, and I think that he certainly gets a good bounce from that in the sense that because of the tone and style of the Craig era, you know, we see films promoted from the back catalogue, like From Russia With Love, For Your Eyes Only, The Living Daylights, mm. License to Kill. And it's kind of like a... If you like Daniel Craig, you will also like Timothy Dalton, uh, presumably. Um, whereas that's in a contrast, I guess, to when it was Brosnan's era, when I remember during that era, it was all about Goldfinger and The Spy Who Loved Me. Um, and with a shift in uh, tone and style, I guess, uh, yeah, a shift in the in the narrative. And I feel like Dalton has benefited from that. Do you personally find his films more enjoyable and his runner's bond better in recent years than before? Yes. Yeah, yeah I, I'm part of that too. I'm part of that era of people who didn't really 
I, okay, I hated Dalton. <laughs> just gonna throw it out there. He was like on the bottom of my list. Um, and I was like, I don't really like his films. They're very moody. They're very serious. And people kept saying it's true to Fleming. And I was like, uh-huh, but I like my witty bonds. And I've made that quite clear. But I think as I've gone through the seriousness of the Daniel Craig era, and especially not being a fan of Spectre and where we, where we ended up, I've gone back through our watch-alongs and through re-watching it. And I've actually rediscovered Dalton's films and I'm seeing it through a different light and seeing it maybe without any sort of prejudice, um, maybe blinding me. Right. And so I have grown to love the living daylight so much. So it's in my top five. And before I was like, ah, who, who really cares about that film, but just understanding and thinking about the film and what it was doing and the way, as I said, uh, you know, I've, I've said a few times, like it actually just blends and has all of the key elements that are typical of all the other eras. Like to me, it's the most fusion um, and representative of, of the Bond franchise. And I think I need a little bit of work and, and I, I have a feeling I can reappreciate because a lot of fans really do license to kill. I have to get over the Miami Vice thing in my head uh, when I watch that film. Um, but that's definitely on my list of, th of films to rewatch. But I think really the Craig era for me personally, and of course the pandemic putting that in there has definitely uh, shifted my perspective. And I look back with fresh eyes and I do appreciate and, and like it more. I think people like an underdog. And I think that in, in the rear view, Dalton, it just, there's no, there's no way to look at his run and feel like he didn't get a bit of a raw deal. Um, you know, as, as Bill pointed out, that he, he, was, he was the second choice. They could spun it any way they want to, but everyone knew he was the backup guy when Pierce Brosnan's contract didn't, didn't pan out. Um, and I, but the Craig stuff kind of, I immediately started thinking about Dalton again back in 2006 when, when Craig's thing came up. I was like, yeah, they kind of tried this before. And it, and it just, the world wasn't ready for it. Um, there was too much of a Roger Moore footprint on the whole thing to really make that hard, hard turn, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, when he's, when he's the sitting Bond, it's one thing. But, but when you saw like, the, you know, the, the cards on the table, it's, it's, it was kind of sad that he only got to do two, that he didn't get to grow into the role the way literally every other bond has gotten to do. Um, so there's this, there's an unfinished business energy to it. And I think there's just a lot of general affection for Dalton because it, no story ever came out about him being a monster in the, in the mainstream press. I'm sure you guys have dirt, but, uh, <laughs> he's, he just seems a very affable, likable guy who made a lot of pretty cool late period career choices. And that, and that, builds the affection for him so after you see him in hot fuzz and after you see him in penny dreadful and that dc thing that he did uh doom patrol maybe um i think people just have an affection for uh, uncle uncle timothy you know i was going to bring up his work outside of bond actually as a reason for why people um might have a a, a greater fondness for him now because he's quite odd. like i can i can tell you like hot fuzz doctor who um you know, all these things that he's been a supporting guy in and tv shows i don't know if i can name a single other film where he's the lead uh starring mm -hmm. role in it certainly not another action film but i do wonder if that sort of ambiguity about some of his earlier career give him a bit of a elevated status because he was known as a stage actor and with that comes a certain amount of gravitas whether or not you saw him on stage or not you know th this isn't you know Roger Moore in Boat Trip this isn't Pierce Brosnan in Lawnmower <laughs> Man where you can kind of point at these rather embarrassing moments in their careers I don't know if Timothy well. Dalton's had that maybe only, sex well. text well, oh, yeah there you go yes. I was waiting for somebody to say it only because he hadn't I they 
they didn't get enough eyeballs, I would say, right? Sextet mm. didn't make the same same footprint that, that Lawnmower Man did. Um, but yeah, he had a wobbly as hell film career in the in the immediate run up to Bond. I mean, he was working on Brenda Starr, I think, when he got the gig, and that's yes, right. That's that, that did that even come out? Was that a direct to video situation? No, it was no, I mean, it came out. It came out. I think it may even came out after the Living Daylights, but uh, it 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 did actually get some kind of limited uh, release. And don't forget Flash Gordon with. Um, love flash gordon well you know but it's like i don't think the box office did but, um, <laughs> no it was more of a cult hit but and, and it, yeah, didn't, yeah. it wasn't on his shoulders in any event no no he was a supporting character yeah and but i was also going to say real quick that one of the odd uh promotional things and calvin's done a review of this on in his video series was the 25th anniversary James Bond special, which 90 to 95% of it's Roger Moore. And then like, you don't see Timothy Dalton to like the last five to 10 minutes of the special. Um, Had the film not come out yet at that point? No, it was just, but it was about to. Right. I mean, you know, yeah. Had but I think, Calvin's, I think Calvin's point though about television is something I want to zero in a little bit more because having a film career when you're in a filmic role, it's two hours on screen. But when you are starring in a television series, there's a lot more screen time. There's a lot more depth that you can get into these characters. And as someone who is still watching, I think I'm on season five of Chuck, he's amazing in Chuck because he plays a range in terms of his characters and he's endearing and he is romantic, but he's also brutal. And for me, I see so much depth and development in, in Dalton as an actor. And he's playing this character that I'm supposed to hate, but I also kind of love because he's just charming. Um, that it, it, it changes the way that I feel about him as an actor. And so this idea of being on major television series, playing these complex roles, connecting with fans, building that type of rapport, I just can't help but then look back without a different lens um, guiding the way that I'm seeing these films. And again, I think Phil is right. He didn't have the opportunity to grow grow into the role, and he was limited by broader perceptions of should he even be in that role. And there was a lot going on in those two films, even trying for, for them to find their identity or for Dalton's Bond to truly get his footing. And if we do want to go back to the Roger Moore period, it took a few films for Roger Moore's films to feel like That's Roger right. Moore films, to well, move away from the brutality of the first couple to settle into, you know, something like the spy who loved me that we're like, okay, this is a good Roger Moore Bond film. It took him a while. Well, don't forget one of his first movies ever was the lion in winter, Peter O'Toole, Catherine Hepburn, Anthony Hopkins, and a score by Academy award winning score by John Barry. I mean, I, I've seen interviews where he talked about, Oh, this is your first movie. You got to be in this like, Oh, this is great. Well, it's, it's not so clear sailing after that. So, I mean, he, I mean, he, I mean, that was a huge movie and it was just, and, and he was a key part of it, albeit in a, a secondary role. There is a universe out there where he took over from Connery, right? At 20, what, six? Yeah. Something like that, yeah. I think, I think that would have been really interesting. And Sorry, I, I've just, I've been quiet while I've been listening to you guys. So really enjoying just sitting and listening to you guys. But um, I was doing a bit of a reading before the podcast and something that stood out to me um, that I found was that Dalton was initially approached in spring of 86 by Cubby Broccoli, um, where he turned down the role again because he was tied to doing theatre performances for Antony and Cleopatra and Taming of the Shrew. 
And the film role that I most associate him with before Bond would be um, Heathcliff in the 70s Wuthering Heights, which if anyone out there who hasn't seen it, I'd really recommend it. He's fantastic. And he has that same thing that you were mentioning there, Lisa, that he has that sort of like darkness, but also that sort of charm. He gets that in real balance. And I think it's really interesting to see a, a real actor's approach to James Bond. Like this, this is a stage actor's approach to the part. And I watched Living Daylights this afternoon before we came on here. And you see things, I've noticed things when you're looking at his performance that you don't necessarily see in other Bond performances in that they, there's a lot of shots. You see him thinking about doing things. You see him stood with his hands in his pockets. You see him trying to blend into the background rather than be the key focus of the frame, which I guess is some way can be accredited to John Glenn, but I also think it's a performance that he's really studied and really thought about, and that's absolutely magnificent. Right, and he also caught the break when Pierce Brosnan couldn't get out of his uh, Remington Steel mm-hmm. contract, and so he was like cast, I don't know, it was I, I forget the exact number of days, but it was like less than a week between between the time he wrapped up Brenda Starr and at the time yeah, he started yeah, they, the living they, daylight. It started just for a week and then I think they'd done a day and a half of shooting before he came on board. Um, and then he arrived and um, they said that his, his hair was the wrong length and that he looked really thin because he's been working so hard and flying backwards and forth. I think he gets a lot of credit as well for his, um, just to uh, touch on uh, what Sean said, he gets a lot of credibility for going back to Fleming. And I think, is he the only one to have read all of the Flemings? Or he, yeah. Yeah, was at that point but it's, at least. But it's, it's still not too late, George. <laughs> <laughs> but that brings with it some, some a lot of goodwill as well, because to have that kind of dedication to the part, particularly when a lot of fans wish that Bond sort of, you know, did go back to Fleming an awful lot more um, and see someone take it so seriously um, is really cool. It, George George read the one key chapter, it should be noted. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's interesting that there's, because there seems to kind of, um, the book Bond seems to have at some point become synonymous with a darker James Bond and a more brutal James Bond. And I'm kind of in the other camp that, I, I don't agree with that entirely. I think some of Fleming's writing is quite cartoony and is quite um, out there and not very serious. Um, so it's it's almost as if Timothy Dalton came in with that gravitas and said, I've read all the books and took it very seriously. And then there be kind of became an association of book James Bond with Timothy Dalton as James Bond, as that dark and gritty Bond. And the, the line sort of became a lot more blurred between book and film Bond. That's really true, actually. I would have loved to have seen how he'd have handled something like fighting a giant squid or one of the more cartoony uh, Fleming moments. That would have been interesting. Sean, do you think that this perception, which I think it's a really great point, but this idea that the Fleming books are, say, uh, darker, more serious, do you think that that is a response more to, say, the Roger Moore films or to the more lighter hearted films, that it's a byproduct of that? And so by comparison, of course, <laughs> you, you can see that feeling. I'm just really interested in this idea of there being different camps and different perceptions of sort of the, the the depth and the tone and the darkness that is in Fleming's writings, because there's moments that are kind of dark, but there's also moments that are not. Um, it's definitely a mixed bag in terms of his tone across 
across the collection. I'm just wondering your thoughts on that. No, I absolutely agree with you. And I think it's kind of peaks and troughs and each novel kind of changes as it goes along. If you read between them, like um, mm-hmm. it, it kind of, it seems like it varies on Fleming's mood and like how he's feeling at the time. Sort of, yeah. you can kind of feel him running out of steam a little bit with Goldfinger, for example. But then by the time he's back in Thunderball, he's a bit, he's sort of then got this idea of action adventure in his head. So, he, well, he, so somebody had that idea, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he used it. Um, so I, Sorry, Sean. No, no, it's okay. I, I, I agree with you. It, it's, um, it's, it's certainly up and down. And I, I think there's just become a sort of general perception in recent years, that the book James Bond is dark. And I think that's because Timothy Dalton has at some point came in. I would hypothesize, I wouldn't I wouldn't assume, that Timothy Dalton came in and said, I'm trying to make this a little bit more like the book character. I'm going with this darker tone, which I think he doesn't give himself enough yeah. credit for either. It, and that just I mean, he said, he said that in the first interviews he did, right? That mm-hmm. he's going to the character back to Fleming. And <clears throat> what a smart move, though. Because then you can't get asked, is your James Bond going to be like Sean Connery or Roger Moore? Mm-hmm. Right? And he said, no, mine's going to be like Ian Fleming's. Boom. Right? Filling. Perfect answer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that was, obviously he did read all the books and talked about it, but I mean, I don't know how much of it was also a way of shutting down that inevitable comparison. It's smart PR. Yeah. But as you guys say, the books aren't one thing. Like the, he did take an, an energy off the books that are sort of an inner life and a reflective kind of thing. You know, if, if M fires me, I'll thank him for it kind of thing. But I don't think anyone's ever gotten the weirdness of Fleming a hundred percent yet. The, yeah. The thing about Fleming is on the one hand, you, you, on the dark side, you have the torture scene of Casino Royale. And then on the other thing, in Dr. No, you have Bond finding a giant squid. It's, I mean, there, there's a lot of variance there. But um, but a lot of people have bought into, uh, you know, Book Bond is dark and, you know, the, and it's literature and, yeah, let's go with it. But, you know, it's, it, like I say, Phil said, it's more complicated. I, I'm interested to know, in terms of Book Bond, when you, when you guys are flicking through one of the novels or reading through one of the novels, um, the character you envision inside your head, do you assign that with any of the particular James Bond actors? Do you see Dalton, for example, as you're it's reading? It's always Connery. Connery. Connery for me, always. Same here, actually. Uh, and if it's not Connery, uh, then it's... It, 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 uh, what was it, in The Express, they did that illustration? Um, yeah, which is the John the- McCluskey. James right. Bond. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's either Connery or that. Yeah, which McCluskey was almost Connery before there was Connery, if you get my drift. Um, I, in my case, it's like a little fuzzier. It's like kind of Connery-ish, but not an exact clone. I don't. I don't envision uh, Hoagie Carmichael by any means. Just to just to be clear. I don't know who I envision, to be perfectly honest with you. I'm not sure if this is a character that fully is fully faced in my no. in my memory. Like I don't I don't think of Sean Connery, nor do I think of any of the individual actors who've played it. And especially when I listen to audiobooks and the character's inner life is being voiced by another person. It's if 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 I was reading the audiobook by Sean Connery, I would think of Connery just because the the voice and the image are so um, uh, connected and so so recognizable, but otherwise, I don't know if the the person is more faceless and that he kind of has like lightish brown hair. Maybe I don't know. 
You know, actually, the one time I envisioned a specific actor actually wasn't one of the Fleming books. It was it was actually one of the movie novelizations. It was specifically Christopher Wood's Moonraker novelization. Suddenly, I had Connery's hit, you know, face in my mind. So, like in that pre-credit sequence of you know Bond, you know, getting tossed out of the airplane without a parachute and getting the parachute and all that. I like had Connery's face with, you know, Roger Moore movie, which was a very odd experience. Used to be that I believed in something. Used to be that I believed in love. It's been a long time since I've had that feeling. I could love someone. I could trust someone. I said I'd never let nobody near my heart again, darling. I said I'd never let nobody in. But if you ask me to, I just might change my mind and let you in my life forever. If you ask me to, I just might give my heart and stay here. So, much like a British retailer, um, their approach to customer service, um, you've got to bring the receipts, love, right? So, the living daylights on IMDb has gone from 6.4 to 6.7, from Craig being hired to Quantum of Solace coming out, and it has stayed up at 6.7. So, it, it, it bumped 0.3 during Craig's first two movies. And similarly, License to Kill went from 6.1 to 6.6, which in IMDb terms is a huge leap hmm. um, given the number of votes cast prior. I mean, it, it took a lot of high votes for it to move that much, right? Um, over Craig's tenure up until 2014, and it stayed up at 6.6 since. So Dalton's movies have had the biggest bump on the ratings since 2005. Wow. It's, it's interesting. Um, and so I remember back, I remember back to the noughties and that was the time when I was becoming a Bond fan and I was a kid and I became a Bond fan between The World Is Not Enough and Dine of the Day. Um, so Dine of the Day was my first cinema Bond experience. And at the time, Dalton always kind of felt like the naughty Bond because his suddenly his VHSs were, they were rated 15. So as a six-year-old, <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't get access to that. And I think The Living Daylights at the time was actually quite hard to track down on VHS. Um, and... I remember back to kind of like all the clip shows that like ITV and Channel 4 kind of did where they interview odd celebrities that have written in a newspaper once kind of thing. And Dalton always kind of kind of was ushered, brushed under the carpet a little bit and no, mm. one, no one gave him any credit at the time. And I, I can't remember it being around Casino Royale that that shot back up, but I can certainly remember it coming later after sort of Quantum that my own appreciation for Dalton was then suddenly sort of brought into light. But I also don't know if that's to do with my age of where I was at at that time. But there might be something to be said here, and maybe Phil can jump in on this, about like the lack of attention on the Dalton era and this idea of things developing more of a cult-like underground status. Like when something is liked so much or too much, 
I think that there's like this countervailing tendency to also start to like and champion things that are maybe undiscovered or not liked as much, right? You sort of go into it and, and it's a feeling of like, we got to fight to support this or because James a lot Bond of people Jr. don't like. Well, there's a limit. That's, <laughs> go ahead, Phil. We're, no, we're, we're going to call the, the point at which you don't do that the James Bond Jr. threshold. Because <laughs> this this theory that Lisa has is, I believe, true and correct, but it has its limits, um, <laughs> as does 1990 animation. Um, yeah, I mean, we see it in our own viewing habits, don't we? Like, I, I, I started getting really into Man with the Golden Gun because it was the one I hadn't really seen that much because I didn't gravitate to those areas. So you start rooting through the, the eras that you are less versed in and the ones that you maybe don't know by heart. Um, but yeah, there's a cool kid club thing to it, I think. Uh, and a lot of critics, uh, probably online critics who, who rank these things and make a living out of like making lists and whatnot, uh, get a lot of mileage out of, uh, a quote unquote controversial opinion of like Dalton's maybe the best one. Dalton's the most underrated because it's, it's, it's one that's not talked about so they can get mileage out of bringing it up, I think to some degree. Um, mm-hmm. there's just a, there's just a, it's a B-sides and rarities kind of thing. You know, those, those shows that you would listen to on the radio where you'd hear the thing you're not hearing all day on the radio. Uh, can I, uh, make a quick anecdote about what it was like to see Dalton's debut in real time back then? Um, like, unlike a lot of my American Bond friends, I was like much more sympathetic to Roger Moore than they were. But by 1985, it's like, okay, it's time for a change. And and there was this whole soap opera with about Pierce Brosnan, and he was going to do it, but then he can't do it. It's like, who's this Timothy Dalton guy? So the first time I even saw Dalton was a still. It was in the Washington Post. And I think it was like uh, him and, oh, I can't remember her name, but she played the female lead. She, the character was Kara. Uh, anyway, it was like this still of them. And it's like, oh, he does look Bondian, doesn't he? And but but again, those are the pre-internet days, so you don't get it constantly. So it wasn't until the movie came out, like, okay, I'm I'm hyped for this. I I want to see this. So I took the day off. It was on a Friday, and I actually saw it twice the same day. The um, I saw it. I saw it the first time, like the first showing, you know, in the afternoon. And then it's like, I was very impressed. And then like, I took my very pregnant wife at the time uh, to go see it again in the evening. And, you know, it's like, I, I thought it was great. It was, it did really seem like it was more Fleming like just, if only just for the physical appearance, you know, he's dark haired and, and whatnot. But um, no, I was, I was very excited uh, when he went, you know, when it came out and, and I was really looking forward to the second movie. Anyway. So we've talked about in the past, Bill, about the um, the group of Bond fans in the States that you knew at the time that were hard Connery fans that refused to even watch a Roger Moore movie. Right. They refused to even get, get it on home right. video. How did they take to Dalton in 87? Can you remember? Uh, no, I remember um, it was mixed. I mean, they definitely liked that Roger Moore was gone. <laughs> Sorry, but that's that's how they viewed it. Uh, some liked it, some not as much, but uh, I think they all liked Dalton per se in his performance. Some of them felt the movie itself, you know, The Living Daylights was a little uneven, but uh, yeah, I, I think they in general did like the return as they viewed it to Fleming. 
you know, the, the, the Fleming of it all is interesting because uh, there, there's been a, a sort of a social media thing of like the Bond reading challenge. David Zariski's got this thing where he's, you know, going over every book. And, and to my surprise, lots of Bond fans hadn't cracked a Fleming book before uh, they got pulled onto this. And I think that there's an appeal to Dalton's Flemingness, as even though we said, like, he, he's, he's not really getting the totality of Fleming, but I think probably I'm part of your fan. I'm part of your journey as a Bond fan. You're, you're, you're going to go through those books and maybe you didn't get to them first, but when you do get to them, let's say you get to them after the movies, Dalton gets reappraised immediately because within his two films, there's probably more Fleming than is in several of Moore's movies. Mm. Um, And so that's kind of a thrill. And, and, you know, I, I watched living daylights in high school or whatever, but, after reading Fleming, Living Daylights hit different because it's essentially its jumping off point is a is an actual Fleming story, and that's that's exciting to to sort of come across post reading the books. And much like um, you know Felix's uh, shark dilemma in uh, License right. to Kill was. Well, I remember specifically Dalton selling me in that scene where it's um, you know you know Bond is setting up to. Um, you know, make sure the uh, defection goes. And something about the line is like, they'll make strawberry jam out of him. And it's like, that that really sold me. It's like, okay, this is James Bond. So, like, I'm, you know, I'm here for the rest of the movie. One thing that struck me when I was thinking about this today was um, talking about using the Living Daylight source material from Fleming. I'm surprised they still had it. Because if you look back, Fury's Only was like, you know, sweeping up all the bits of Fleming they hadn't used, right, to make a story. Then they went to Octopussy just to use the title, because why not, and use her backstory. But other than that, there's nothing in there, really, is there? And then they did a wholly original quote, original, which is Goldfinger remake for, from A View to Kill, and then went back to Fleming for The Living Daylight. So I'm, I'm just surprised that Dalton had The Living Daylights to use when it was his turn, because they kind of did two Roger movies that they could have used it. And then they were kind of like officially out of material, right? Unless you go to the zoo. <laughs> <laughs> right. And you had that bit from Live and Let Die. But yeah, that was like a very slim bit at that. Well, correct me if I'm wrong. So it wasn't the original intention. So before Dalton was cast and just after View to Kill, when they were coming out with the ideas for the Living Daylights, which wouldn't have been the Living Daylights then, wasn't the original intention to go back and do a sort of prequel kind of thing? And Maybarn wanted to do that. Was um, that was Michael G. Wilson's idea? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he got shot down by Dad. Yeah, right. But they did do a did they do a full script? I know they did a treatment, but uh, yeah, because uh, Cubby said no. It's like, you know, Bond has always been an experienced character. We're going to go with that. We, we don't want to see a bumbling, stumbling James Bond. Yeah, he didn't want to subvert audience expectations, right? So it's interesting. Do we do you guys associate that sort of Fleming connection? Would you credit that to Dalton or would you credit that more to Maybaum and Cubby? Uh, I would credit it to both Dalton and Maybaum. Maybaum knew the... He knew the Gospels, to put it uh, exaggerated way, but uh, he he knew the Fleming uh, scriptures, as another friend of mine puts it. But uh, but but so did Dalton. So yeah, you know, I, I would like uh, credit the both of them. One of the other aspects I was thinking about was 
has enough time passed now where the movies don't feel dated because we kind of treat them as period pieces now? Does that make sense? Like enough time has passed now where they don't look slightly out of date. We know that it's an 80s film, so we treat it as an 80s film versus maybe that's what some of the Brosnans are starting to feel like now. Potentially. I mean, I, I think License to Kill has got a bigger hill to climb than yeah. Living Daylights in that regard. I was just going to make a quick point about, I, I think that they actually get an extra degree of nostalgia because of being mm-hmm. made in the 80s. And I, I think that same uh, nostalgia extends to A View to a Kill as well, uh, certainly in a lot of the critiques and uh, reviews that I see now. And I don't know how much of that is the you know, the people in jobs where they, as Phil mentioned earlier on, they make these ranking bond lists or these, uh, you know, hot take articles uh, that you see in The Guardian about, hear me out on why A View to a Kill is actually a good film and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. But it, it is because they're written by people who grew up in that time now and it, th- there's an element of uh, nostalgia to it. That was exactly what I was going to say, Calvin, and it's very well articulated. It's something about 80s filmmaking and 80s action spy filmmaking, like the the quality and the style before we hit the Brosnan era and before we start going into like a really big blockbuster action machine gun style of Bond. This is sort of a nod back to the films that were coming out in the 1980s, the visuals, the action, you know, they do have action, but it's not the same degree. It's not the same type of of gunplay that takes place. And I think there's something to be said about the style of the film that, that fills us up with nostalgia and we're looking back at it as being films of the 80s. You know, I will say this, though, about The Living Daylights. It's one of the hazards about trying to make your movie too topical because the whole thing with the Muhaddin is like, oh, that Oops. hasn't aged well. <laughs> Bond and Al-Qaeda. But, yeah, and uh, yes. And, uh, and also, I mean, having acquired a few years ago an early draft script of that, uh, originally, I mentioned this on the watch along at the time, um, you know, they did, you know, they did not have an Aston Martin with, a with all these weapons. It was like Bond just stole a police car and, but like a little tiny bit of it is in the final film because the Aston Martin can like, uh, monitor police channels. That's, that's why he could, because he had stole a police car in the earlier drafts of the script. It's, it's interesting. I, I was so I was literally about two minutes ago thinking about that very gadget bill, um, where he's listening to the radio scanner and thinking about that sort of contemporary um, t- that's t- contemporary like a sort of placement of a film in that that gadget that radio is just a it's just a Philips radio. It's not something fancy like we'd come to expect. It doesn't look high tech. It's just him pressing buttons on a normal eighties radio, and I think there's something to be said about. Dalton making that character a bit darker and stripping him back and that the, the, the filmmakers and John Glenn also stripped back all the elements of the film because otherwise it wouldn't have worked. It would have been very odd to see Dalton in a view to a kill kind of really heightened environment. Um, and that, that's really interesting. And I, I'm interested to know, do you guys think that that sort of the contemporary nature of the films, that 80s nature of the films, do you think they were entirely necessary at the time? As opposed to what, though? What what, what else would they have done? You mean keeping it more outlandish or keeping it... Yeah, uh... I, I guess so, because I think you could argue... I'd... Well, or or you just make it so that it doesn't make overt 
topical references. Oh, okay. People are going to yell at me, but like, okay, the Dick Van Dyke show made a point of like not doing topical fashion statements. That's why Mary Tyler Moore wears the clothes she wears. It's not supposed to tie into any specific time period. I got bad news because, for you. Well, you can say it, but, but, but it, it'll come around again. Don't worry. But sure, that's cyclical. Right. But that's still why they, they really did try to avoid topical references because they wanted the reruns to like run for years, which they succeeded at. But you can still say it's too topical. But anyway, another way of looking at it was uh, uh, Dalton's films appreciated more now because of all the eras, they're the ones that are m- the most realistic, closest to our own reality compared to the other Bond eras. You mean like, there's nothing in his movies that couldn't happen, right? Well, I don't think you can say that for any of this. You can argue he's a semi-classical James Bond, and you can't even say that with Connery. You know, like compare uh, Connery and Doctor No from Russia with Love with Diamonds Are Forever. Like, ew. but uh, of course he, you know. But again, Dalton only did two movies, but they're like very consistent. Personally, I think License Kill is like not as good as the uh, living daylights by no some panels disagree yeah yeah i i know i know yeah well whatever well we're, we're talking about it as if it was a, a a gradual turning or an evolution but i i'm curious i have a theory that might be total horseshit you can tell me if it is but um so think about it like this they, they announced in 2005 we're going to adapt casino royale we're going back to the first fleming book i think it on some level, a bunch of fans are moved to then start reading Fleming because, as we talked about earlier, they a lot of them hadn't, right? So in 2005, suddenly a bunch of Bond fans are going to start boning up on their Fleming because they're adapting the first James Bond movie, and I wonder if that that moment kicked off the, the sort of look right. back at Dalton. Right. I like it, Phil. I think that's a great theory. Sold. Mm-hmm. It's a <laughs> because that that fits with the timeline, even on IMDb, which is not like scientifically mm-hmm. accurate. But it bumps in 2005. Ho, ho. And then in 2006, it gets like the double bump, right, Um, from when the film comes out. Um, So just to add to that sort of that hypothesis that maybe perhaps it's not just the announcement of Casino Royale that triggered that, but perhaps it's the response to the Jason Bourne films. Mm. Mm. Um, Actually, Sean... I think that's a very good point because if you look at the New York Times in October of 2005, their story about the uh, uh, announcement about uh, Craig's casting, uh, the uh, Bourne films like play a big role in that uh, in that story. And I keep going back to that because also in that story, Michael G. Wilson says, uh, you know, Barbara and I had to do something for ourselves. Um, that they just had to do something drastically different because they were like losing mental energy, you know, continuing the series. So yeah, I think that's uh sorry, I, I Pierce. That's a valid point. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, You're boring I, mom I, and pop I, to sleep. <laughs> I, I don't think there, I don't think there was much love lost at that point between uh, Michael and Barbara and Pierce Brosnan. I don't have a theory that fits the timeline, but I just wanted to add something else. Like I know we're talking and it's the Dalton films and the Dalton bounce, but James Bond is also defined by the people around him. And there is a lot of love for Marion Diabo and her role. And that 
contributes to the popularity of the Living Daylights. And there's a lot of love for the figure of Pam Bouvier as well, um, and Lupe Lamora and the women who are featured in License to Kill. And I think we would be remiss if we didn't mm. consider that that type of fandom and and the role that the roles that women play in defining not just James Bond as a figure, but defining the world of James Bond, populating and embodying these films. I think that at least to some degree uh, might also influence. So as we've seen the evolution of women um, and 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 to varying degrees moving forward, maybe then going back and seeing somebody like. Kara Malobi, who Bond truly loves. I buy into their love story just like I buy into his love for Vesper Lynn. And then having somebody like Pam Bouvier, who's his partner in the field, and there is no romance until the very end, kind of reminds me a bit of Camille Montez, sort of partnering Bond and supporting right. him. And I feel like there's some commonality there with the roles that women are playing as, uh, it, it, even in terms of chronology, that very much mirrors what is happening in the Daniel Craig era. Another thing I thought about was what different what differentiates his era to others. Um, we've talked about it on other podcasts because um, places like the BFI are trying to crack down on this now. It's like disability is not sh- used as a sign of villainy. Yes, in his era, but it is in everybody else's. Mm-hmm. And I think that sort of furthers, you know, the point that I was making about the supportive cast. You know how does villainy factor into this representation and and how we remember these films? And I know that we've talked a bit about the plot of The Living Daylights, but you also have the strength of a character like Frank Sanchez and his hench people. You got Benicio Del Toro in a film, right? These are very memorable actors and very memorable figures. And I think they play a role and they're not stereotyped Um, based on ability, the way that villains in other areas frequently, too frequently, and of course in the Daniel Craig era, with the exception of um, Quantum of Solace, every other film has, you know, some sort of facial difference, deformity, disfiguration as being literally a signifier of villainy, whereas you don't get that in these other films. It's more based on evil intentions and motivations. And I think that's something that we can definitely sink our teeth into as as audiences, as we become more aware of how problematic those representational strategies are. I think it also goes into what I mentioned before about the Dalton films can actually exist in our own world, whereas the others can't. And that's one of those. It's one of those things that takes the other movies into that like realm of unreality as if every villain's got an eye scar, right? Whereas in our world, the villains don't. Yeah. And I think that when we even just look at the way that we conceptualize like evil actions or intentions in our world today, like we don't have signifiers being like, I'm a villain, you know, here's this one thing. Instead, it's it's people who look like us and talk like us, but who are in positions of power doing things. And American. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's Joe jo Don Baker's the last American actual Bond villain, right? Um, Gregory Beam. <laughs> yeah. More of a hench. <laughs> he had he had um grandiose ideas of being a villain. I would I would have loved to have seen that. It's like the target villain. Yeah. Do you think that now that we're just talking about characters, do you think that Bond's relationship with Felix Leiter, specifically in license to kill, might be contributing to the bump because you have the casting of 
um, Jeffrey Wright, you have sort of the return in Casino Royale of Bond and the friendship and the connection, at least in the first two films. Um, and I'm wondering if that then makes us look back nostalgically on their friendship, their connection. And of course, you know, being best man at somebody's wedding shows a very strong connection that's there. And that there just might also be just commonalities of storyline and, and that, that connect. I mean, I've never really fully sat here and thought like, what are the connections between the Dalton and the Craig era and like the first two films? But I feel like I, I'm just sort of mining out these ideas. Like there's far more connections than I even thought when we were starting this podcast. Sure. I, I would have thought that, that the License to Kill story would be a, a knock on um, uh, Dalton's run because people are so cranky about Bond going rogue. And like, that's kind of the big one. That's the big Bond yeah. goes rogue movie, right? But I mean, I kind of feel like, I don't want to say the whole Craig era is Bond going rogue, but there's a lot of rogueness going on. In, yeah, if you, in, if you think Craig, Craig goes rogue, check this out. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, because it's such a regular thing of, of def literally defying orders and like going against policy in film after film after film. And he's always on the run or doing stuff like very much to the side rather than being fully supported by MI6. And I can definitely see like there's a connection between there's there's him in, in the Craig era. And then there's like, let's go straight rogue, like full rogue in mm -hmm. License to Kill. Well, just real quick as an aside related to Felix, as far back as 1960, when Jack Whittingham did the first draft of the first Kevin McClory screenplay, screenwriters had been like wanting to make more of the Bond-Felix relationship, but it just never really happened, you know, until, you know, the Craig era. Um, you know, it, it's weird because, I mean, uh, Dalton and... Uh, John Terry, I think his name is, they're okay, but, uh, yeah, but, you know, then they brought, uh, David Hedison back, but that was weird. So it's just that whole Bond Felix thing is something the series has struggled with. I love the idea that David Hedison came back though. Like, yeah. I feel as though the films that he, or that, that he's featured in are connected by the actual novel license to kill. Right. And so the fact that he's playing the same character in, films that are inspired by the same book is just one big like irony for me. And he is a very, like, I just like him as an actor and I felt his connection. So I, I mean, I didn't find it too, too <laughs> strange, but that's because I saw a literary connection. I never thought of that before, Lisa, that he, he, <laughs> he shows up in License to Kill to get a rain check on the plot details right. that, that he didn't so, get to do in, in Live so, and Let Die. Like, <laughs> yeah. 1973, hi David, we're making Live and Let Die, do you want to be in it? Yeah, sure. Uh, nice day. <laughs> hey David, we're actually going to do it this time, do you want to be in it again? <laughs> yeah, you guys owe me, you owe me a chewed off handed foot. <laughs> Chekhov's leg. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting point. Well, and supposedly uh, the whole license kill thing was by chance, like David Hedison ran into uh, Cubby and Dana Broccoli at a restaurant in Los Angeles. And then it's like, hey, maybe we yeah, should do that, this. That story is how Hollywood works, though, isn't it? Yes, it is. Hedison was so hiding in the it. bushes. That's right. Waiting for them <laughs> to show up for lunch. <laughs> hey, guys. <laughs> you're making license to kill. <laughs> <laughs> Remember when you didn't let me do any of the Felix stuff from the book, Live My Die? <laughs> I'm willing to go method for this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, although, what was his method at the end of a license kill? Well, uh, morphine. Dead, but I'm yeah, he was really good. Of, now. Full of pain pills. 
He had the good juice running through his veins. <laughs> There's a. I was looking at an old Starlog um, about License to Kill, and the ar- article is called. James Bond's last adventure question mark and mm-hmm. and there's there was such a cloud of doom over Dalton's run back then and that couldn't have helped yeah. anything no no i i remember uh, i don't remember that specific story but like i saw other reports again this is in the pre-internet era where like this stuff was coming out where uh Dalton had done an interview like this right. may be the last movie not my last movie like the last movie ever yeah uh, for he the was monster Ken did yeah. one of them he's like yeah I think this franchise is done <laughs> yeah. yeah well well and 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 you can't blame him because it's like oh we used to like go to Pinewood now we're going to go to this to this decrepit Mexican film studio that's in disrepair not um, quite Montenegro no not at all But was there that sense in the reviews that I don't want to say Dalton killed Bond, but like that he was contributing to the demise? Because there is this broader narrative that the films were not as popular. And so obviously we know about a whole bunch of other issues that were happening at the time. But was there just, again, Phil, in in your readings and prep for this, did you get the sense that people were like kind of possibly blaming Dalton for the demise? Or that he was just. Not so much. Yeah. This article also talks about how they, they'd run out of source material by now. They're officially out of source material. And um, mm-hmm. that it's, it's just a mood and it's hard to pinpoint. But so yeah. Starlog did, did back-to-back uh, features uh, in different issues. And it's there's just a vibe of like, it's darker. I don't know if people are going to be ready for this. I don't know if people are going to like it. But I mean, the reality of, of the, the box office of it is that License to Kill got clobbered by Batman, and 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 a Bond movie has never come out in the summer since. Um, it, it not just by Batman, by Lethal Weapon Two, Ghostbusters one, Two. No, not even Ghostbusters. Oh no! Like uh, this, the top four that weekend uh, was in the U.S. This U.S. only was Lethal Weapon Two, Batman, which which was in its fourth week of release. Mm-hmm. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids in its fourth. <laughs> weekend of release right and then license to kill license to kill was the only new movie it that weekend. opened fourth wow open fourth yeah 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 but i mean to that i'd say casino royale opened second in the states behind happy feet it did yeah <laughs> yeah and it was and, and it was behind and it was behind happy feet for two straight weeks but yeah. you can rationalize that which if you don't happy- know kids is an animated penguin movie right oh, which happy feet, but happy feet though was like 90 minutes and um casino royale is like almost yeah. two and a half hours yeah. like you Horse can't queens. get as many yeah exactly um but so the per screen average was maybe higher or something something like that you know it's like but but i but think that's called awesome. reaching well <laughs> when, when, when you're when you're behind honey i shrunk the kids in its fourth week of release that's a little hard to bounce back from sure I, but 2005 was a different animal 2006 um you know, Batman Begins didn't light the world on fire, but did so well on DVD, apparently, that that was sort of what tipped right. into getting the sequel off the ground. So Casino Royale probably cleaned up on home videos, my guess. Oh, yeah, we talked about that before. It, it absolutely mm-hmm. was blockbuster on the DVD market in the States. All that which led to its Which led to its Quantum of Solace box office being really good. Huh. But, you know, the Bond film following a great Bond film is always enjoyed that Bump. bounce yes mm-hmm. different bounce different episode 
So, Calvin, you've not been the most outspoken fan of Dalton over the years, right? <laughs> that was quiet. Uh, well, well, I, I, I mean, I'm I, surprised you volunteered to be on this one. To be honest, well, I, I, I just wanted to chat, really, <laughs> with, with some like-minded people. Uh, no, but I, I tell you what, though, I have, and I, Sean touched on it earlier on as well about. Um, I, I could never really connect with his version of Bond as a kid, particularly. And that's when most of us get into Bond when we're watching it with parents or whatever. And um, certainly at that time, I was much more into Roger and Pierce. Um, and I and I think with some maturity, like License to Kill, I used to think was my absolute least favorite Bond film. And now it's, it, it, it's sort of grown in my ranks um, quite considerably. Living Daylights, I'm still quite cool on. But um, License to Kill in particular, and I think a big part of that is just going back to all the kind of stuff we talked about, about Craig's films as well. It did, in a way, make it less of an outlier. It made License to Kill less of an outlier because it was just this like strange, incredibly violent, um, more serious one. Um, and now with the Craig films in the mix as well, it's like, oh, actually, it doesn't look all that serious at all. Uh, you know, that winking fish wouldn't have made it into any of the Craig films. There's some <laughs> more levity to it. Uh so, uh, so yeah, no, no, but I, I, I've certainly appreciated him more and more over the years. Definitely. I remember in the summer of 1988, when they started filming in Key West, CNN did a feature story. I happened to like, I stumbled into it, like watching it on TV and like, they didn't do deliberate, um, spoilers, but like they said just enough, like, holy crap, they're going to like do the license to kill thing where it gets chewed on by where Felix gets chewed on by a shark, like, whoa. Like, so that, um, that caught my eye. And so I had a, like a lot of uh, anticipation for the film, but uh, eh, didn't do, do so well here in the U.S. But I was there on day one. Any final thoughts? Um, I, I just want to say, I, you know, it's like too bad that uh, Timothy Dalton, he ran into a lot of bad luck. Because, like, of course, after License to Kill, you had that long, extended legal fight between uh, Eon slash Danjack and MGM. And MGM was taken over by, well, a crook. And just, it was just, it was just too bad. It was just, like, horribly bad luck. And it's, it is, it's just too bad he did not get a third proper, you know, Dalton did not get a third proper Bond film. The closest he got was a 1991 movie called The Rocketeer, where he was the villain. And it was like very entertaining. It didn't do so great either, but uh, he, you know, he was fantastic in it. And uh, anyway, it was like an obscure comic book at the time. It was not Marvel or DC, but uh, I got a big kick out of it watching it. So yeah, and they're rebooting that one, I believe. It, it, that's a that's a cult classic amongst a certain generation. Disney's making a new one. Around that same time, Bill, he uh, Dalton, Dalton decided to make a, a an involuntary appearance in Alex Ross's Marvel's comic as Tony Stark. Um, <laughs> Alex Ross had a habit back then of of putting actors' likenesses into these sort of fully painted comic books, and and Dalton is fully present as Tony Stark in his books. I had no idea about that. Oh, I'll send you some. Um, as much as I would love to see it, and I'd pretty much give anything to see a Dalton third movie, perhaps the best thing that can do, the best thing that could happen to his tenure is that we never got to see it because like the end of Game of Thrones, I think everybody's got their idea of what it should have been. And 
I don't think it would have met any everybody's expectations. So having that third movie is in your imagination is probably better than what we would have got. Right, because the uh, what you have in your imagination is probably better than any movie they would have made. And this is a, a subject for a time another day. I've read the uh, the opening uh, treatment of what would have been a uh, third Dalton movie, and there are some issues with it. I've never seen the script that was then taken from that treatment, but, uh, um, but clearly the intent was to go bigger, better, you know, kind of like the spy who loved me following up the man with golden gun, but, uh, you know, we'll never know. And, and again, that lens, you know, again, that reinforces the mystique. What would right. of a third Dalton? That's the word I was watched? grasping, trying to grasp mystique. Yeah. Schrodinger's third bond movie. <laughs> I was just going to ask on that, um, which film post License to Kill, to Kill do you think um, is the most like a, a Dalton film? Ooh, Quantum, I would guess. Yeah, I'd go with Quantum as well, actually. Maybe The World Is Not Enough. The World Is Not Enough always has like Living Daylights kind of like echoes to yep, me. Yep, yep. That's true. I don't. I don't know that treatment for the third Dalton movie had the villain having sex with an Android. I'm not sure about that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure. I mean, I think you, you've both taken my choices of the world is not enough in quantum. So, Mm. but for for what Bill is saying, it sounds like the third one is again, grounded in scientific reality. Once again, science (laughs) fact, science fact, but I, I do think what this does is, the mystique gives us space to imagine, reimagine, contemplate, and discuss. And I think it like it, it does something that say <clears throat> the uh, George Lazen like George Lazenby's one and done, right? And so we can have a conversation, and we have our bond that just steps in and steps out, right? And his film is so different; um, it opens up a lot of questions. And then with Timothy Dalton, it's sort of like the the era that never fully happened right it 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 resides in our sort of memory and and its legacy is the fact that it is potentially incomplete and that we have mixed feelings like i I know that calvin might not be a fan of, of this but i love the fact that he's on the show talking about it because i think as a fan base we still are are wavering as to how we feel about all of these films and rediscovering or changing our minds or maybe even just being steadfast in our opinions but I like the fluidity of it. And I like the fact that there is no consensus. Like, I think that's the more interesting conversation to me is the fact that fans are still out on this one. Fans are still processing and reprocessing. And it shows us just how much fandom can move within individual people. I, I just think it's fascinating. Well, I'll just tell you one specific uh, personal anecdote. I said earlier, like I, I saw uh, the Living Daylights twice the same day. Uh, when I went the second time with, as I said, my very pregnant wife, um, back then there were these things called shopping malls, and they had these things inside called movie theaters. And so the movie theater inside the shopping mall had this display case, and clearly they had like borrowed mannequins from, I don't know, it was tuxedo rental place? I don't know, but you had a you had a mannequin with a tuxedo. You had a uh, female mannequin with a you know evening dress, and then somebody—it must have been someone on the staff—got a bunch of uh, 
the signet paperbacks by Ian Fleming. And it's like, I remember that display case very well. And, uh, and again, just to wrap up the personal connection for me, it was like two weeks after that, my uh, daughter was born. So like, I remember that whole debut of the living daylights very fondly. So it's that's like why you called her Kara, right? No, I didn't call her Kara. <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> We went the we went the whole out without saying pig fingers. Good. Nope. <laughs> All right. Uh. I, I talked to my wife about that the other night. She doesn't back off. Yeah, he has pig fingers, and she admits it's like it's only one scene. It's like one shot essentially, but that's all it took. Are we sure it's his hands in that shot? <laughs> was it Desmond Llewellyn <laughs> doubling you know what? that one this, shot? What she said was like women care a lot about hands, and it's like oh, it's like hands are like hands a man's hands touch a woman more often than any other part and it's like uh she's still like she still <laughs> doesn't like his hands fair enough i know i had never heard that before <laughs> i guess it holds true all right on that note of pigs trotters and stuff i uh, will call it a week thank you very much bill calvin dr lisa sean and phil Thank you. And I'll Thank find something inappropriate. Thank you. And I'll find some inappropriate music to play as out. See you. Thank you. And and, and and Timothy, if you're listening, um, I like your hands. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Take care. Bye.